Hi, this is Ben Lowell with Back to the Bible Canada and Dr. John Newfeld. Thanks for joining us again today as we continue our series, The Word Became Flesh, with a message entitled, Witnesses to the Light. So let's turn in our Bibles to John chapter 1, verses 6 to 8, as we join Dr. Newfeld now. I want to begin by giving three illustrations and then tie them together. So, so here's the first. I remember the first time I heard someone say, if we don't take notes about our decisions, well, it never happened. You know, we were in a meeting and realized that no one was recording the minutes. And that comment jarred me. Of course, the meeting happened. And of course, we were talking about the items on our agenda. And we'd made decisions about what we had to do. But the statement was true. Unless we had a record a record that accurately recounted what was said and what was decided and agreed upon action steps. There was no objective way of recounting what happened. Meeting was useless without a proper testimony or a proper witness. Well, that's exactly what we have in the Bible, a written testimony of what happened when God became a man. A witness was required. Same thing happens in a trial. So here's my second illustration. Let's say it's a murder trial. Unless witnesses are called and evidence is presented, no murder happened. Of course, a murder did happen. One person acted out an evil matter and ended the life of another. But witnesses needed to be called. Evidence needs to be examined. An impartial way of judging the merits of the evidence must attend to the trial. And all of that has got to be recorded. Otherwise, it's of no value. Well, the Bible's like that, presenting multiple witnesses. So the final example, people who are in politics often speak about how to get their message out. They know that even though they may have great ideas and all the great ideas in the world are of no good unless their ideas are heard and discussed and in the public eye and people can make a decision based on what they've witnessed. A way of going public needs to be found. And that also is what we have in the Bible. Jesus could have been born in a stable, but without a way of going public, well, it serves no good. You know, when I began this Christmas series from John chapter 1, I began by recounting a moment in my life when I wanted God to reveal himself to me. I spoke about my utter inability to respond to the witness of his majesty all around me, the stars, the beauty of nature, the complexity and marvel of my own body, the, the fact that all around me was a chorus of intelligent design, but I was unwilling to consider the evidence. See, it makes me wonder what I might have done if a voice were to have spoken. I mean, would I have checked myself into a psych ward for hearing voices? See, here's the thing. Whenever a truth is being considered, we must both examine the witnesses and consider the persuasiveness of the evidence. When John begins his account of Jesus coming into the world, he begins by telling us that Jesus is the Word who has eternally existed with the Father, who is both with God and is God at the same time. And then John tells us that with the birth of Christ, the light shone in the darkness and the darkness has not overcome it. The Bible claims that Jesus Christ is the creator of the universe and that he is the one and only Son of God and that he's entered into this world to reveal the truth about God. He is the true light that has come into the world. And so we might imagine a world of darkness, a world that has not seen the light. 
And one day the sun rises and streams of light pour into what was a darkened world. Immediately the darkness retreats. A, a world of blackness becomes, well, a world of color, of, of beauty and of image. Nothing will ever be the same for the people who see the light. And that, says John, is the coming of Jesus. But that brings me back to the question of witness. What if this was done in a corner, witnessed only by shepherds and wise men? The shepherds were hardly community leaders, and the wise men, well, they went home. And Joseph and Mary, well, they were refugees to Egypt. What then becomes of this magnificent moment? For if it is not properly witnessed and recorded and made public in a way that the public can see, well, at least from our viewpoint, it's like the thing never even happened. And now another question. 2,000 years after God entered the world clothed in human flesh, why hasn't everyone heard and why is it that this event, as startling and as grand as it is, why isn't that obvious to everyone? So, for instance, why can't we identify the creator of the universe as easily as we can identify the universe? Why can't we have it as a general maxim that the creator entered into his creation? Why isn't that simply a given? What's the problem? Why doesn't it just take reasonable intelligence and proper education to help everyone to come to faith in Jesus? So why do so many reject what should be painfully obvious? You know, while I was in pastoral ministry those 35 years, I often marveled at something. We would have a baptism service, and I would be particularly amazed at the adult stories of conversion. People told just before we baptized them. I, I remember the woman who taught Islamic studies at a, at a university level coming to faith in Jesus. I remember the man who came into the building just to use the urinal and who, while standing there, sensed that this was an extraordinary place and he wanted to learn what was going on here. I remember the man from Iran. He, he was a Marxist and he hated all religion. He arrived in Canada but didn't know anything about Christianity and, and he thought that he would find out. And I remember his story as to how Jesus touched him and his, to his utter amazement, he found himself bowing before the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. I remember the atheist young man who had spent four to five hours in my office and almost inexplicably, he said he had sensed God calling him and then right in front of me, bowed his head and surrendered his life to Jesus. I mean, these are the stories that will live with me and I cherish them and I, I'm gonna take them into eternity. But there's another kind of story, a story that we're all too familiar with. It's the story of the person who hears the gospel and finds it, well, unattractive and unbelievable and even offensive and not worthy of further examination, something that's easily dismissed. And, and here's the question, why is that happening? Why can't people see the action of God as easily as they see the stars and the sun and the moon and nature all around them? Well, today I'm going to try to answer that. Indeed, the answer to this question is at the heart of the gospel of Jesus. Neither intelligence or strength or ability or heightened spirituality either keeps us out or gets us into the kingdom of God. The problem is moral. It has to do with an inherent love of darkness. John is going to make that point. But in spite of the darkness, God has borne witness to his deeds in history. The meeting had minutes, if you will. The trial had witnesses and a court record. The political campaign had a strategy to get the message out. Indeed, what God has done to testify to what he has done, well, that's staggering. 
And this, this, this work of bearing witness of what he has done is also a part of the Christmas story. So I'm reading now John chapter 1, verses 6 to 8. There was a man sent from God whose name was John. He came as a witness to bear witness about the light that all might believe through him. He was not the light, but he came to bear witness about the light. Well, this short text in the book of John is also a story that you find in Matthew, Mark, and Luke. It's the story of a man named John the Baptist. Well, just so that there's no confusion on this, John the Baptist, the John that's mentioned here, should not be confused with John the disciple, that is the man who wrote the book of John. John the disciple, or John the apostle, was in fact an early disciple and follower of John the Baptist. It was his fascination with John the Baptist that eventually brought him into the orbit of Jesus. So, this man, John the Baptist, was an unusual fellow. It's been some 400 years since Israel had seen a genuine prophet of God. There was a common theology among the Jews that there would never be another prophet until the Messiah came. And then, suddenly, out in the desert, people were hearing of a man dressed in a camel's hair garment with a leather belt around his waist. His food was locusts and wild honey. And he was a wild-looking man, and he had an amazing message. The kingdom of heaven. The kingdom of God was at hand. And because all Israel was experiencing a great expectation that this event was about to happen, John found a very ready audience to his message. There's something else. The very last writing prophet in the Old Testament, prophet Malachi, had ended his writing by saying, Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes. And here's John. He's deliberately dressed like Elijah. His message was completely in line with expectations. The crowds that went out to see him, traveling from Jerusalem down to the Jordan, were increasing daily until it must have seemed like all of Jerusalem had emptied out to go and hear this man's amazing message. And if you will, this was God's arranged publicity event so that when his son stepped out onto the stage of public ministry, All the work had already been done in building the anticipation of his coming. And John the Baptist said, the one coming after me is so great that I'm not worthy to stoop down and untie his sandal strap. Hey, this is Isaac here from In Doubt Ministries, the young adult ministry of Back to the Bible Canada. So, I almost share a birthday with Jesus. In fact, just 45 minutes away. You know, in our family, I've always been teased as the Grinch who stole Christmas in 1992, since the family had to push the Christmas celebration to Boxing Day. Anyways, whatever your experience has been with Christmas, maybe it's a difficult time each year, or maybe it's your favorite season, we can all come to the place of being overwhelmed by the wonder and awe of the King of the universe, humbling himself by becoming a human on earth, Jesus Christ, all out of love for the sake of our salvation and his glory. So let me say to you, Merry Christmas. And if you'd like to come alongside us and support us in achieving our year-end goal of $400,000 for the ministries of Back to the Bible Canada, simply call us at 1-800-663-2425. That's 1-800-663-2425. During the time of John the Baptist, a practice had developed in Israel. And if you go to Israel today, even to Jerusalem itself, you're going to find some hollowed out places and they're called mikvahs. 
They looked like baptismals, and they were places of ritual cleansing. And many of the faithful would regularly go through a ritual bath in order to be clean of all that made one unclean. Indeed, it seems more than likely that John used this idea when he began to baptize along the Jordan. Come, repent, wash your sins away, he said. Be cleansed of your moral filth, lest when the kingdom of God arrive, you're going to be judged for your sins and you're going to be found unacceptable to God. Get ready to welcome the great king, he said. And they came, ever-increasing crowds, more and more. And the more John thundered against sin, the more the crowd trembled under his words. And in that day, everybody in Israel, from Judea to Galilee, heard about this man, and they were pouring out to see him. But, says John the Apostle, this John the Baptist was not the light. He was a witness to the light. You know, it has been hypothesized that one of the reasons John the Apostle writes these lines is because years later, in fact, all the way into the third century, there were still followers of John the Baptist who did not turn to Jesus. In fact, we know from historical documents that some of the followers of John the Baptist actually opposed the claims of Christians. Indeed, the followers of John the Baptist had spread throughout all Israel and all the way into Asia Minor, and they were found as far as the city of Ephesus, which is located in what is now the nation of Turkey. They were a growing and expanding religious movement. And here's how the book of Acts describes one encounter between the apostle Paul and the followers of John the Baptist. And so I'm reading Acts 19, 1 to 5. While Apollos was at Corinth, Paul took the road through the interior and arrived at Ephesus. There he found some disciples and asked them, did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? And they answered, no, we've not even heard that there is a Holy Spirit. So Paul asked, then what baptism did you receive? John's baptism, they replied. And Paul said, John's baptism was a baptism of repentance. He told the people to believe in the one coming after him that is in Jesus. And on hearing this, they were baptized into the name of the Lord Jesus. So essentially what happened among those first followers of John the Baptist is what I fear still happens today. As an example, It's happened among those who too strongly stress their own denominational tradition. Now, look, let me be clear. I'm not opposed to denominations. Indeed, I have ministered quite happily in a denominational setting for all of my life. Denominations provide, in my view, first a structure of accountability. They also call their pastors and people to a common statement of faith. They allow churches to partner with one another to do together what they can't do alone. And furthermore, There's a wonderful thing that often gave rise to denominations in the past, whether the courageous stance of Martin Luther, the evangelistic passion of John Wesley, the believer's church model of the Anabaptists and Menno Simons, the evangelistic and revival preaching of A.B. Simpson, the Puritan passion for holiness that attended men like John Owen and others, William Booth and his ministry to the poor, John Smith and the founding of the Baptist, Thomas Cramner, the rise of the Book of Common Prayer, John Kelvin and John Knox giving rise to the Presbyterian movement. I mean, I could go on and on. But the dark underbelly of the thing is that there are people who are too proud of their denominational tradition, so much so that they've never put Christ at the center of all their affections and in some cases don't trust fully in his grace and they think their job is to spread the message of their denomination. See, they never understand the difference between bearing witness to the light and the one who is the light. See, I know of some people, that is, in the way in which they talk, 
you'd think that their denomination is the light. But that not only happens in denominations. Listen, it happens in families. Well, someone will say, you know, of course I'm a Christian. Well, my parents, my grandparents were Christians. I was brought up in church and I went to Sunday school. I was raised to know right and wrong. Of course I'm a Christian. See, that phenomenon happens over and over again. In fact, it even happens in local churches. You know, my church has the best worship. We've got the greatest preacher. We've got an amazing youth ministry. And so when we talk publicly about our faith, See, I'm amazed how many people have misplaced speaking about the good news of Jesus, and they've misplaced that by telling people the message of just how great their church is. Again, they've not understood the difference between bearing witness to the light and being the light. You know, but I fear I'm getting off track. Let's see if we can get back to John the Baptist's testimony, his witness to the one coming after him. Through the book of John, we have numerous examples of witnesses or testimonials or evidence regarding the coming of Jesus. So I'm reading John chapter 3, verse 28, and here again, we find John the Baptist speaking. He says, You yourselves bear me witness that I said, I am not the Christ, but I have been sent before him. So you see, he himself was very clear about his role. But as we read through the Gospel of John, we find the theme of witness. Well, that theme gets repeated. So listen to the words of Jesus, and it's recorded in John 5, 31 to 35. He says, If I alone bear witness about myself, my testimony is not deemed true. There is one who bears witness about me, and I know that the testimony that he bears about me is true. You sent to John, and he has borne witness about the truth. Not that the testimony that I receive is from man, but I say these things so that you might be saved. He was a burning and shining lamp, and you are willing to rejoice for a while in his light. Now, before getting into the details of what we've just read, let me take you ahead all the way to John 10.25. There we read, Jesus answered them, I told you, and you do not believe. The works that I do in my Father's name bear witness about me. Now notice, from the book of John, the theme of witness comes up numerous times. John the Baptist is a burning and shining light, shining the spotlight not on himself, but on Jesus, the one who's coming after him, who, as he says, whose sandals he is not worthy to untie. And then there's the testimony or the witness of the Father. That refers to Jesus' baptism as the Father testified in the hearing of everyone that was there on that day that this is my beloved Son. And then there's the witness of the First Testament, 1,500 years of prophetic witness that the Savior of the world was coming. And then there's the testimony of the miracles of Jesus, which, which include his mastery over nature and his mastery over disease and over Satan and the demons, and ultimately his mastery over death as he rises from the dead. See, all of these are a chorus of witnesses. Uh, They form a kind of a flood-like effect. That is to say, imagine floodlights from a number of vantage points lighting up a stage. Everyone chases away the shadows from a different angle so that when all the lights are combined, shadows and darkness have fled and the events happening on the stage are now made vivid and plain to anyone watching. And that's what we find at Christmas. As Paul would say to King Agrippa, these things were not done in a corner. And that's John's point. When John the Apostle writes the events of Jesus' life, his book, it's another floodlight. It's shining on this event. 
See, with so many lights, how is it possible to ignore so great an event? Well, the point to be made at Christmas is that God entered into the world, and it's hardly obscure. It's, it's not unclear. It's not vague. It's not murky. And that's why going through Christmas without seeing the light is like me wanting to know whether or not there is a God while I'm standing outside up against the grandeur of all of his mighty works. See, don't you see? The witnesses have spoken. The evidence is in. What then accounts for the fact that many can't see? Well, John the Apostle says it's because men love darkness. And a light so bright hurt their eyes and and they shouted, shut off the light. And they turned from it and they closed their eyes. But, But here's the good news. John 1 verse 5 says, the light shines in the darkness and the darkness has not overcome it. See, in spite of the fact that we have turned away from the light, God won't stop shining his light. Indeed, he has turned the spotlight on so that everyone can see. And so every Christmas, I mean, we're reminded again that that the light has begun and actually will not be shut off at all. You know, in spite of the world in which we live in today, in which, you know, consumerism seems to eclipse the light of the gospel at Christmas time, yet notwithstanding all of this, isn't it incredible that in spite of all of this, that people are still hearing about the babe in the manger and that God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. Let's give thanks that this light cannot be shut off. Thanks so much, John, for your message today. A a thought, I guess, is, you know, do you think it would be true to say that in our church today, we spend so much time trying to attract people to programs and the things that we do that sometimes we lose track about speaking about the good news about Jesus himself? Yeah, that's really, I think you've, you've captured that well, because, you know, this idea that there are witnesses to the light, and even what we do in our local church is supposed to be a witness to the gospel of Jesus and to Christ himself. But sometimes, you know, we just get caught up in that whole thing that, you know, my local church, I mean, do you know that we have a great youth program, we have all these things, and that becomes for us the very message that we share. I mean, uh, that's why also I think you have some people that, you know, their message is, look how good my denomination is, or their message is, you know, look how, you know, whatever it is, and uh, we, we take our eyes off of Jesus, and we put our eyes onto programs and things that we can do and accomplish. And, you know, whenever we do that, we take our focus from that, which is truly meant to be the center of all focuses. Thanks so much, John. And join us again tomorrow for our Christmas series, The Word Became Flesh, right here on Back to the Bible Canada, where we teach the Bible. Recently, I sat down with friends Mark and Corey. Their testimony of faith and reliance upon God is inspiring. You can listen to the entire interview at backtothebible.ca. But today I wanted to share just a few words of their encouragement. When we see a ministry like Back to the Bible Canada that's had such a profound impact on our lives as a couple and family, we just want to lean in and return the blessing. I may never be on radio teaching, but what we can do is give. We can give our part, just a little something we can be involved with and invest in eternal things. We're so grateful for Mark and Corey and many others who choose to invest in Back to the Bible. Our prayer is that you would do likewise. Help us finish this year well and begin 2018 ready to do even more. 
Call us at 1-800-663-2425 or visit backtothebible.ca.